Have you ever looked back at something that you asked God for and realized you really did not know what you were asking for? When I think about how God closed the doors that I really did not need to be walking through, I just have to shout hallelujah. I see God's hand at work in rejections from all of the girls that I pined after for years in high school who are absolutely not the ones. I see God's mercy at work in rejections from the jobs that I applied for coming out of seminary that would have turned out to be wrong for me because I ended up here. Praise God. I simply have to praise God when I think about how God blocked all of the things that I wanted so badly and felt that I needed but actually would have been wrong for me. There are times when we ask for stuff that God says no to because God knows they're not good for us. But there are other times when God sees that what we're asking for is, in fact, what's right for us. But God also sees that what we think that that yes answer will look like is actually very different from what it will look like. When I was 15, not only was I begging God to make Kelsey, Jesse, and all these other evangelical white girls want to date me, but I was also begging God for independence. And that independence was what God wanted for me. And God ended up giving it to me, but it turned out very different from what I expected. I thought it was going to be having my own car and going wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted, not having to wait for anybody to get their hair done, nails done, everything done. I thought it was going to be never having to cut my hair again, having a beautiful afro. I thought it was going to be going berserk on the dance floor every weekend. High school Terry wasn't allowed to go to prom, y'all. But what it actually turned out to be was being so tired of driving and wondering why in the world I ever wanted to get rid of my own personal chauffeur who took me to all of my activities, what it actually turned out to be was growing weary of only ever relying on myself and having no one around at home to anchor me and change me and, yes, sometimes make me late to things. What it actually turned out to be was my fro was not even that great. I knew nothing about conditioner, moisturizer, silk pillowcases, any way to protect my crown of glory. What it actually turned out to be was not really even going out that much to dance parties or bars or anything social because I was too busy having another sad Netflix day in bed. So 15-year-old Terry was meant for independence, and God gave me what I asked for. But I had no idea it was going to look like loneliness, isolation, and withdrawal just as much, if not more often, than excitement and adventure and power. In the same way, James and John in this story are asking for the right thing. But what they think the yes answer will look like is actually nowhere near what it turns out to be. Let me say that again. James and John in this story are asking for the right thing. But what they think their yes answer will look like is actually nowhere near what it will turn out to be. Okay. So before we break that down, let's back up a little bit. James and John, sons of Zebedee and Salome. Despite the fact that their names are not as cool as their parents' names, they are very confident dudes. Throughout the Gospels, they are constantly feeling themselves for various reasons. First of all, they're part of the inner circle. They're Jesus' best friends. They share some intimate and exclusive experiences that no one else shares, like the Transfiguration. Secondly, Mark notes that when James and John leave their fishing boat to follow Jesus, their dad, Zebedee, is left with the hired men, which implies that James and John come from some money. Third, we know that in John's Gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he brags about running faster to the empty tomb than Peter did. And also, at one point in Luke's gospel, Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and they pass through a town that doesn't show them hospitality. And James and John ask Jesus, 
Get this. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> so we know that the boldness and the self-confidence that they're showing in our text today are not an isolated occurrence. The fact that Jesus asked them if they are able to drink the cup that he drinks and be baptized with the baptism that he's baptized with, and they immediately reply, 100%, my guy, no doubt. It becomes much less surprising when you remember that they're also the guys that thought that they could personally command fire to come down from heaven. And actually, this story in Luke comes exactly three verses after Jesus hears the disciples arguing over which one of them is the greatest and decides to say, the last among all of you is the greatest. And he takes a child by his side to illustrate his point. Mark's story today has the same energy. James and John's bold request to sit at Jesus' left and right happens right after Jesus says that it will be very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, as we heard Pastor Amos preach on last week. And that, in turn, comes right after him saying that whoever does not enter the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. None of this seems to dampen James and John's self-confidence, though. And I find it so interesting how Jesus responds to the audacity of their request. First of all, they begin the conversation by saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? <laughs> Would you dream of it? I, I'm getting stressed just thinking about it. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, whoa there, Skippy, you're coming in at a 10. I need you to take it down to a 5. <laughs> he simply rolls with it. He says, what is it you want me to do for you? Like what they said and how they said it were completely normal and expected. But then again, this is the Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. The next lesser-known part says, Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, I'm not a gambling man, but I would bet a small fortune that those words were ringing in James and John's ears when they decided to shoot their shot with Jesus, try to lock down the box suites next to his in heaven. <laughs> and I bet the interaction with the rich young ruler was at the front of their minds as well. They might have been thinking, okay, so Jesus just said that riches are not necessarily a sign of God's favor, and they're actually off, more often than not an impediment to ultimate wholeness and righteousness and glory. And then Peter made the great point that all of us disciples are actually really good to go in that respect because we've all left everything to follow him. We did what that rich guy couldn't do. And then Jesus responded to that by saying that because we did that, we will receive a hundredfold in this age and eternal glory in the life to come. And I got so hyped at that part that I stopped listening there before he finished with the whole, the last will be first, first will be last part. So, who is more qualified than us to have glory in the age to come? Who could be more worthy, by your definition, Jesus, of having the best seats in the house, after yours, of course, in the throne room from which you rule over your kingdom? First come, first serve, right? Out of the 12 people most qualified, we asked first, and we know that we're on our way to die, so we knew we had to act quick. <laughs> ask now, forever hold your peace, right? End quote. So, we can see why they, they would make this request. Their own self-confidence, combined with Jesus' instructions to ask for, they want, for what they want, gave them the green light to make this request. So Jesus responds by telling them what all is entailed 
in securing a throne in God's palace. And it may seem a bit cryptic and metaphorical, drinking a cup and, and being baptized. But we should remember that he did just tell them straight up a few verses earlier, for the third time total, that he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and condemned to death, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and only after that would he rise again. So I think this whole cup and baptism metaphor was a pretty obvious shorthand at this point. I don't imagine there was much confusion in James and John's mind as to what Jesus was referring to. And I think Jesus knows this, and this is why he doesn't miss a beat when they say that they are able to drink his cup and undergo his baptism. He says, yeah, you're right. You're able, and you will. So it's not their boldness, it's not their confidence that Jesus pushes back against. The only thing that he challenges is their understanding of what it means to sit at his right and his left, what it means to have a throne, what it means to be glorified. In other words, I think they get what Jesus is about to do, and they get that being his disciples means they're going to have a similar road to walk and similar trials to endure. But I don't think they yet understand the nature of what the ultimate point and the ultimate reward of all of this is. So let's fast forward and take a look at how having a throne in God's kingdom ends up playing out for James and John. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and cornelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders, dressed in white robes, with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Day and night without ceasing they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is taken from a vision that John receives at the end of his life. Long after he becomes the only apostle to stay and witness the passion and crucifixion of Jesus. Long after his brother James is executed by the sword of King Herod. Long after he watches all of his friends, all the other apostles, follow James to martyrdom. Long after he is thrown into prison and then exiled to a remote island. He and his brother James have by now drunk the cup and undergone the baptism. But it's not until now that John learns what it truly looks like to have this heavenly, otherworldly, eschatological glory that he had been asking for. It's not about sitting on a throne, being seen and appreciated and revered. It's about falling off of that throne, onto your face, 
to worship the one whose glory is so magnificent and surpassing and healing and consuming that it is instantly and permanently making us utterly unconcerned with our own glory. It's about falling off of that throne to worship the one who emptied himself, who abdicated his own throne in order to become like us, to become the servant of all of us, that he might turn us from the dead-end pursuit of our own glory to the endlessly fulfilling pursuit of God's glory. The 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob, the 24 elders, fall down and worship whenever the living creatures praise God, which is day and night without ceasing. (laughs) They're not spending a whole lot of time on these thrones. You might even say that the thrones are there for the purpose of falling down from them. You might even say that the thrones are there to aid the liturgical practice of prostrating yourself before God. The thrones are meant to sit empty for the overwhelming majority of eschatological time. Their emptiness, a reminder of the fullness we find when we are absorbed in God. The vacantness of the thrones, an accentuation of the occupation of the highest throne. James and John learned this kind of glorious humility over the course of their lives as apostles. They learned how to empty themselves in hopes of filling others up. They learned how to lower themselves in hopes of lifting others up. They learned that they found themselves most satisfied when they were most humbled. And now, as two of these 24 elders, they learn that to reign in the next world, to have a throne in God's kingdom, is simply to continue that work. The next chapter in Revelation describes the elders as holding golden bowls full of incense, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So part of their work is to bring others up before God's throne and to give them the chance to see and to hear and to worship. The vision that John receives confirms that this glory that God has for us, the glory that he and his brother were asking for, is more satisfying than anything we can imagine and more humbling than anything we can imagine. So our task is to humble ourselves and to leave it to God to satisfy But these are opposite sides of the same coin. They're part and parcel of what it means to have glory. Even, so let's ask ourselves, how can we live in such a way where even the thrones that we're given become most valuable and how far down we can lower ourselves from them? Even if I'm given the thrones of love, fatherhood, priesthood, success, whatever, can I pursue them and enjoy them not as things to be grasped, but rather as positions from which to be humbled so that I feel the particular feeling of falling down on my face from that position, that particular vocation, that particular height, so that I sing a new song to God which arises out of these blessings in my life, so that I can demonstrate to those around me how even these glories are not ends in themselves, but rather refractions of the light of God's glory. How will love humble me? How will true friendship humble me? How will fatherhood humble me? How will success humble me? These need to be my only concerns because I know that God will satisfy me. And the humbler I get, the more crowns that I can cast down, the more thrones that I can vacate, the more times that I can vacate my throne, the more satisfied I will be. What are the thrones you're seeking? How do you plan to vacate those thrones if and when you are seated on them? In many ways, we really don't know what we're asking for when we ask for these things. We can only peer into the window with a vastly limited view of what's inside. 
but I believe that I'm able. And I believe that you are able. I believe that whatever the cup is, whatever the baptism is, we are able because of what God has done in us and will do in us to make us able. And I know that the cup and the baptism will probably turn out to be very different from what I expect, and so will the thrones. But that doesn't stop me from asking for it. It just changes how I anticipate it. So the bold ask is good. The confidence is good. We are instructed to boldly approach the throne of grace. But we have to know what we don't know. We have to recognize that sometimes, even if we're asking for the right thing, we still don't know what we are truly asking for. We don't know what the fulfillment of that request will look like. We don't make the request thinking that we know exactly what the yes will look like, but we are invited to hope and ask for a particular result. But we are also invited to always be ready to be humbled and satisfied by a yes that defies our expectations. I keep asking God. I keep asking God for love and confidence that I'm able, but I'm still working on knowing that I don't know. I'm still working on being ready for God's yes to look different from how I'm picturing it. What am I imagining glory to look like? So far, when I've asked for love, God has given me opportunities to empty myself, to humble myself, to learn really difficult lessons that I probably wouldn't learn anywhere else, to refine my own beliefs and desires, to master myself, to learn how to communicate myself more effectively. And with every experience that feels like a setback or a loss, with every word from God that seems like a no, I keep asking myself, what if it's actually a yes that just looks different from what I expected? I can't let myself believe that my request was unrighteous or my confidence was unwarranted. More, more than that, it's actually that my, my best reasoning, my best theological wrestling, my greatest insights simply cannot take into account all or perhaps even an adequate portion of the wisdom that is required to know and arrange for God's will, for God's best for me, for us to be done. So it's not about quashing the questions. It's about asking them with the knowledge that the answer may not make sense yet. So friends, make the audacious request to God. That's what God wants. Just know that only God knows the true scope of what you're asking for. In some cases, like those of James and John, you may get exactly what you are asking for, but the opposite of what you were expecting. In the name of the Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit, amen.